The sharing of biased and false, false news has, has become, become all too common, common on, on social, social media. media. More alarming, some media Media, the fourth estate, the watchdog of democracy, our tool for understanding not only what is happening in the world, but why it matters. You probably don't need someone to tell you that U.S. media outlets are in a deep crisis. According to the Pew Research Center, circulation for daily newspapers has been on the decline for the past three decades. In 2016, ad revenue for the industry was just one-third of what it was a decade earlier. While high-profile outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post have boasted about soaring subscriptions in the age of Trump, the story for the industry as a whole has been one of consolidation, layoffs, buyouts, and decline. The winners in this new media climate? Google, Facebook, and Twitter, which are the new primary targets for ad revenue. Look, the reporting industry, it's terrible right now. That's Ari Robinhoft, our chief of staff, talking on a recent episode of our live streaming show for the campaign called The 99. When I traveled in, in 2004 during the general election, with with the campaign with John Kerry's campaign in 2004 there were reporters for the magazines who would go out on the road and have to file once a week stories there were photographers who were shooting on on Leica cameras on film who would leave the road to develop their film to get on the to get the cover shots for the magazines yeah. now people first off reporters are filing they have to tweet they have to file three or four stories a day who are traveling. Photographers are filing every five minutes yeah. with photos. So reporters are looking for fast, simple narratives. It's a bias towards easy because, look, in a lot of cases, these are people who are just trying to do their jobs. Perhaps not coincidentally, the public trust in the media has plummeted too. According to Gallup, it dropped from 72% in the late 70s to a low of 32% in 2016. And while that number has improved a bit in the last few years, 68% still say that the media is biased. Just 21% of Americans say that they trust the media a lot. Now, some of that distrust is rooted in the convenient anti-media rhetoric of Donald Trump, who famously called for literal attacks on members of the media establishment during his 2016 run. But I had heard that he body slammed a reporter. Any guy that can do a body slam, he's my kind of, he's my guy. But some media critique, I would argue, is well-founded. The other day, this was hilarious, Politico, I think it was, had a headline that said, like Biden stays at number one, Warren and, and Harris are, are competing over three. And it's like, wait, there is a number between one and three, right? Is there a number? Yeah, it was Harris Warren tied for third place in new 2020 Dem poll, but Biden still leads. Where's Bernie? This is Hear the Burn, a podcast about the people, ideas, and politics that are driving the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign and the movement to secure a dignified life 
for everyone living in this country. My name is Brianna Joy Gray, and I'm coming to you from campaign headquarters in Washington, D.C. Bernie supporters have long complained about negative and unfair media coverage of their preferred candidate. And frankly, there are a lot of examples to point to. So for this episode, we are documenting our least favorite media, oh, let's call them anti-Bernie tendencies, with the help of Sam Cedar of The Majority Report and Katie Halper of The Katie Halper Show. I think that there's a media bias that, yeah, of course, like Fox News and, and Donald Trump will call things fake news or what did they call CNN Clinton News Network. <laughs> and they're coming from a right wing perspective and Trump is inconsistent and he's not honest and he's a hypocrite. But anyone who's progressive and who fights for any kind of justice, economic, racial, gender based, knows that the media is very unrepresentative. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been that way historically. It doesn't ask the important questions. That was Katie Halper, host of a progressive podcast and radio show and a comedian who injects some levity into left politics. She did a nice job of distinguishing between right-wing attacks in the media, which are often personalized and threaten actual harm to journalists, and leftist critiques on the substance of what's covered. A lot of people will say Trump and Sanders both speak to a certain group of people who will feel disaffected and angry and like the system isn't working. And they use that to try to discredit Sanders and make him Trumpian, right? Their styles are similar, shouting and unsmiling, anti-establishment and anti-media, absolutely convinced of their own correctness, attacking boogeymen, the 1%, CEOs in Sanders' case instead of immigrants and minorities, offering impractical promises with vague details, lacking nuance and nostalgic for the past. Of course, Sanders speaks to multiple audiences, but one of them, one of the ones he does speak to effectively, I think, are the disaffected kind of angry people who feel less behind. And there's a big difference, though, between speaking to these people and saying, as Trump does, I feel your pain or I see your pain, you're hurting and you have every right to be angry and blame Muslims and Mexicans and saying, I see your pain, I feel your pain, you're hurting and don't blame Mexicans and Muslims. Don't blame people who are being oppressed and marginalized with less power. Blame institutions, blame corporations or the 1% or blame structural things. That's a really important distinction to make. And in fact, it's a much more effective way to battle the former is with the latter. Indeed, we would be remiss in this episode if we didn't stress Donald Trump's own habit of criticizing his media coverage. The president's assault on the media has been unrelenting from the earliest days of his 2015 campaign. It's a standard deflection for literally any negative coverage of his seemingly endless litany of shady and outrageous misdeeds. So, as Bernie often says, let us be clear. Journalism is vitally important work that has the potential to hold the powerful to account. We just want to see it fulfill that promise, rather than run interference for the country's entrenched elites. Here's Katie again. It's very easy to think, oh, this person says the media is dishonest, this person says the media is dishonest, therefore they're making the same exact argument. Stylistically, Sanders and Trump, very similar, right? They sort of both thrive off of that conflict, that negativity. And they're not. They're coming at it from very different places and their perspective is different. Like Trump will never say the media is dishonest because corporations own the, the, the stations and channels, right? He'll say that they're dishonest because they are being unfair to him. Obviously, people on the left and there's a long progressive tradition of, you know, liberals and progressives and leftists who tried to speak truth to power and take on the powers that be 
And probably one of the most important places that shows up is in the media, because that's how everything else gets discussed and framed. Like if we could talk, if we could work on one problem, I mean, even when it comes to climate change, racism, anything, really any issue, if we don't have a more honest, robust media, we can't really solve any of those things. This is a striking point, one that really landed with me because it relates to why I felt somewhat empty after watching the coverage of the last debates. The questions that get asked, the answers that get the most attention, just weren't the issues that most affect the lives of everyday Americans. Busing and school segregation are huge issues. But the question of school segregation was personalized rather than attached to the needs of voters. Schools are more segregated today than they were 30 years ago. But that wasn't said on the debate stage. And there was no conversation about any specific candidate's desegregation plan. Bernie Sanders' Thurgood Marshall education plan has been described as, quote, the most progressive education platform in modern American history. But pundits seem less worried about candidates' plans to desegregate schools than personal conflicts, which are, yes, admittedly spicy. A 2013 study showed that less than 1% of all news covered the poor. And if it's more today, I think Bernie deserves credit. Three years ago, a $15 minimum wage was attacked by the Democratic establishment as a pipe dream. Hillary Clinton described Medicare for All as akin to wanting a pony. And nearly all of the candidates currently running on the Democratic ticket agreed explicitly or implicitly through the support for the party's chosen candidate. The fact that stories relevant to everyday Americans aren't generally covered is exactly why this campaign has launched the 99 in this podcast. But that doesn't mean that the bias of the mainstream media, with its millions of viewers and billions in backing, isn't a problem. Sam Cedar is somewhat of an expert when it comes to left media. In 2004, he became the co-host of Air America, a progressive radio station with Janine Garofalo. Air America went off the air in 2010, but Sam's show, The Majority Report, continues to air on YouTube and was the birthplace of The Michael Brooks Show, hosted by last week's guest, Michael Brooks. Sam is also an MSNBC correspondent and a friend of Chris Hayes, perhaps the most progressive of all mainstream media pundits. In fact, I first met Sam on The Chris Hayes Show last year. So I wanted to ask him how he would explain media bias to the average American, who likely perceives the differences between Fox News and MSNBC, but may not see the tension between left media and more moderate liberal media sources. I mean, Fox has more than a bias, right? Fox has an agenda that is very, very explicit. And this is a sort of a nuanced difference. But I would say that there are definitively biases at CNN and MSNBC at all other outlets. Fox has a very aggressive agenda. I don't think there's as strong of an agenda politically speaking, at CNN and MSNBC. You know, I think there's a bias uh, against things that they perceive as too left, but I don't even think that it's that conscious of a decision. I think that ultimately is what happens, and I think it's more a function of the nature of the people who work in that realm. In other words, for-profit media tends to reflect the class interests of the people who own it, operate it, and consume it. Behind outlets like Bloomberg, 
The Washington Post, and The Wall Street Journal are billionaire owners such as Michael Bloomberg, Jeff Bezos, and Rupert Murdoch. Entire cable networks like MSNBC are owned by some of the biggest companies on earth, like Comcast. And shaky revenue throughout the industry has led to consolidation to the point that one company, the pro-Trump Sinclair Broadcast Group, controls 173 local TV news stations. This is just a factual statement. The elite media, the media that's at the top, the cable nets, the lead editors, the reporters, they tend to live in Washington, D.C. and New York. Mm -hmm. They tend to be upper middle class or wealthy. They work for companies worth billions. It's billions of dollars. So on TV, you have millionaires paid by billionaires to present information. The Washington Post has almost like a problem. They like go into withdrawal if they don't write or publish an anti-Bernie piece. Who owns the Washington Post? Oh, Jeff Bezos. You may have heard of Jeff Bezos. He uh, he and Bernie don't have that great a relationship. And of course, Bernie uh, Sanders and Ro Khanna helped pressure Bezos to raise the minimum wage that he paid. And the Washington Post famously once published 16 anti-Sanders stories in 16 hours. But don't worry, because Kalen Borchers, who was a Washington Post journalist at the time, he took care of it. He took a look and found out it wasn't biased. I mean, it was pretty meta. They didn't even bother with like a public editor or anything. Here's Sam again. I mean, first off, you look at the pedigree of the outlets. I mean, MSNBC in the run up to the uh, Iraq war, and then they were not in any way a left network at all. I mean, they were right. That's where Pat Buchanan was at that time, uh, Tucker Carlson, Joe Scarborough. Uh, And then they maybe tried to do stuff that was like sort of down the middle-ish. And they, uh, Frank Luntz, was there in the run-up to the Iraq war. And I know, I knew people at that time who were contributors there. And there was a definitive sense that they wanted to get behind the war, that they did not want dissent about what was happening. Now, part of that was a function of they, they were owned at that time. Majority of their ownership was one of the largest weapons manufacturers in the world. So, you know, that's where there's sort of you get those sort of like narrow agendas, right, that are sort of ad hoc. And below the owners, these outfits are staffed, especially at the editorial level, by people with vastly more wealth and access to power than average Americans. There are people, with Sanders, this comes up a lot, like the media and the political elites are invested in a world that Sanders doesn't, Sanders Sanders presidency would would rightfully challenge, right? One of them is like the think tank class, Mm -hmm. which is very allied with the media. And it's very incestuous. And lots of people in the media are pundits and pundits work at think tanks. And a lot of these think tank people are take positions that are anti-Medicare for all. They really try to kind of take the wind out of the sails of really progressive positions, not by being on the right or or not embracing that they're on the right, but by pretending they're the more reasonable leftist position, right? Like they're the ones who will get it done. They're the pragmatists. And then you have Sanders who was making these unapologetic demands that really highlight people's hypocrisy and, and, and really shift the conversation to the left. And what's interesting is with the media, you'll never hear the media say, the corporate media, you'll never hear them say, how are you going to pay for this war? How are you going to pay for this tax cut? Mm. You only hear them say, how are you going to pay for this Medicare for all idea? This is many, 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 so many trillions of dollars. Um, and the thing about a very crowded primary is that he will at, he will be asked very specifically at times where those trillions of dollars are coming from. Sounds great on paper, but how are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for anything that really benefits the majority of people? 
no one ever asks how you're going to pay for that. But people will ask how you pay for things that serve the, you know, the arms industry or the, the rich in terms of tax cuts. Sam echoed that point. Who is telling you the news matters. Broadly speaking, I think the bias uh, against the left is one that's not terribly different from the the mainstream corporate media, which is we are people who have succeeded in the context of a structure that is, politically speaking, you know, center-right, I would say. And center-right people in terms of their perspective, tends to do better in a center-right context. I think that many of the biases are not so much because there's somebody up uh, at the top thinking like, I'm concerned about this policy or that policy. It's more like when people identify as being of the left or when they espouse political perspectives of the left, they are Mm -hmm. immediately considered marginal by these people because that's just their worldview. And I think in a place like CNN and, and MSNBC, and I think there's you know some difference between the two, but those who are similarly situated away from the center on the right, although I would say even further away from the center on the right, are so alien to these people in some respects that they feel obligated to have them on more. It's worth pausing on this observation because it's spot on. A recent poll from Media Matters found that right-leaning guests surpassed left-leaning guests on every major Sunday talk show, not just on Fox. NBC's Meet the Press was the most ideologically imbalanced show in the study, featuring right-leaning panels 63% of the time and left-leaning panels just 8% of the time. Only 50% of Fox News Sunday panels tilted right. A tendency to prop up never-Trump conservatives and virtually no genuinely left voices has an effect. For example, a recent morning consult poll found that among potential primary voters, regular MSNBC viewers were the least likely to support Bernie compared to numerous other major outlets, including Fox News. It's like a rehabilitation program from working for George Bush to being on MSNBC. I don't know why they have this like head start, but at the like from the middle aged or something. But I don't know what's going on with that. That's weird and scary. And you have all these these war hawks and warmongers who are, you know, part of the resistance. Like, I don't want to see David Frum on MSNBC. Remember him? He's a conservative who backed the, the war in Iraq. Jennifer Rubin at Washington, the Washington Post, another total hawk right winger who who said terrible things about Obama, who said things that were so Islamophobic, Andrew Sullivan called them out. This is maybe a little inside baseball, but this is not, you know, being anti-Trump is not enough. That does not make you a progressive. That does not make you for the people. That does not mean you're not part of this elite or not a right winger. You know, I remember early on when I started to do this uh, on Air America, we had the first majority report and Janine Garofalo and I were, were just sort of getting introduced to this world. And we had a guy on named Michael Massey, I think his name was, and he was at the Columbia Journalism Review. And he was talking about this dynamic where many reporters and, you know, people in media basically perceive of themselves as center left. And as such, there's a lot of overcompensating that happens. They don't want to exhibit that, 
you know, their personal attributes. Now, they perceive themselves as center left. And I suspect to a certain extent, the way that we would identify those people now would be sort of neoliberal. From an economic standpoint, they're actually probably closer to center right. But they have, you know, and we're talking 15 years ago when uh, 16 years ago when uh, the, the president of the United States wanted to make an amendment to make sure that uh, we couldn't have marriage equality. I think they perceive their social uh, issue set to be of the left and they compensate by bringing on the hard right. And they they just are allergic to the idea of an economic politics that is more egalitarian. So why don't we see then this kind of overcompensation from folks on the right? I mean, you will see a Tucker Carlson, you know, bring on, you know, a a Katie Halper or someone else from the left, usually in an attempt to use them as a punching bag and it often backfires. But really, you don't see the same kind of commitment to fairness and balance, if you were like both siderism on the right as you do on these left outlets. And it seems clear to me that it's very rare that you see someone who represents a genuine left view on these shows even as much as you see people who represent the right. I mean, I think that's unequivocally true. I mean, I think that happens because to succeed in that world, like I don't think it's 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 a world where people go in there and they're, uh, you know, for the most part, there's I mean, I, I imagine this this happens occasionally, but I don't think it's a situation where people go in there and they're genuinely situated on the left and they get corrupted there. I think it's just simply it's it's more of like a filter. And your tendencies to be a center left, for lack of a better uh, description, uh, or center right person, you slide through the filter. And that's where you get that measure of success. Are you saying that, like, basically that there is, is there a, as a push, is there a push from the network to say this kind of news doesn't sell, this kind of news doesn't sexy, isn't sexy enough? You know, is there is part of it? Does part of this have to do with the commodification of the news and the fact that there are kind of market incentives to show things that are either new or so radical or insane that they they get clicks and views? You know, there, there's an argument that someone like Bernie Sanders, who's you know who gets knocked for saying the same thing for 30 years because the same material conditions haven't changed for 30 years. Isn't just isn't just isn't exciting enough for network news, so they'll show you know Trump's empty podium, uh, because that will keep more eyes on it than talking about a fight for fifteen dollars minimum wage. I want to interrupt myself here to point out that after this interview was recorded, the L.A. Times put out an article with the Twitter subhead: "In a crowded presidential field, is Bernie Sanders old news?" I'd argue that it takes a good deal of privilege to characterize the fight for enormous structural changes like universal health care and free public education, fights we haven't yet won as old news. Anyway. There's not a lot of imagination that happens in the production room of most news newsrooms. It's just not. There's a lot of like looking to your left and looking to your right, seeing what they're doing and emulating it because that's just a safe space. That dynamic, I don't think, is you know terribly different from uh, most corporate settings. There's just a lot of risk averseness. You're putting out a product every day. There's just not a lot of thinking about it. And you know, I, I go back to that conversation that I had had with this guy Michael Massey 15 years ago 
I remember him specifically saying, like, you know, you got to imagine you're a reporter from the New York Times and you get 3,000 letters saying, you know, you're not covering this correctly. That's going to impact your coverage. You're, you, every time you put paper to pen or, you know, start to type something, that's going to be in the back of your mind. This, this working of the refs, I think, is what Eric Alterman coined that phrase. I think that there's a, there's a lot to that. I also think within the corporate structure, there's a lot of times where they don't want to just they just don't want to make waves. And so the people who get hired don't make waves. I mean, that's what I mean by filter. I want to push back a little bit, Sam, because it does feel like there is a definite market for left news. And you've seen it in, in the extent to which alternative media has blossomed in the last let's say, five to 10 years into, and there's been a proliferation of left news outlets. So you have the Young Turks, you have um, magazines like Jacobin and the explosion of DSA membership and uh, magazines like Current Affairs. And suddenly there is a desire to have left coverage. If there is some kind of, um, you know, um, click incentive for these organizations, and that if there is a thirst, I think, genuinely for news and exchanges on these programs that is exciting, then there's definitely, I mean, I understand what you're saying that, you know, that there's, there's a risk of averseness, but there also is a need to get eyes on your programming. And being too staid and unoriginal in your coverage leads to low. So, so that's just, this is where you get like a focus, let's say, on Russia, things that are relevant perhaps not as relevant to the lives of everyday Americans as some of these economic issues, but are sexy and political and get a lot of coverage. Or you'll get wall-to-wall coverage of the Jesse Smollett case. You know, things that are, are sexy and exciting. But that doesn't seem to correspond to a sexy, exciting movement like the progressive movement, where you have these huge crowds that were draw- driven by Bernie Sanders then and now that just don't get covered. You know, so there does seem seem to be an inconsistency with, you know, what kinds of incentives are driving what kind of coverage. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. Uh, again, I'm going off of public reports. I don't I don't have the inside scoop at uh, MSNBC, but I think there was a real sense in the run up to the 2016 election from press reports. And even after that, that the sort of the liberal, more you know, liberal left hosts were going to get axed. And on some level, they were prevented from being axed because of the ratings explosion. And I'm phrasing that specifically like it wasn't like, oh, great. Wait a second. The ratings have exploded. This is great for us. I think there was a quality of like, oh, we're jammed up now. I mean, so I definitely think that there is it reflects, you know, management's perspective uh, at times. I also think you have to like factor in the idea of incompetence. Cable has a real problem. I mean, in many respects, Donald Trump saved cable television. I don't know how long you know, of a reprieve it, it got, but you have a lot of people in this industry who do not get what's going on in the country, both from an ideological perspective or even just sort of as like a, as a uh, media consumer uh, culture. I think it's a, let me put it this way. I think it's a little bit of both. I would also add that you do not get to be the head of a news division in a major corporate structure if you are someone who has throughout their career been committed to stories that aren't necessarily always sexy. 
if you have a perspective on the news that isn't necessarily uh, profit driven, you're just not going to get to that position of power. There is an institutional bias in the media for something new, for something exciting, for something salacious. That's our chief of staff, Ari, again. We have an institutional bias that we've seen somewhat this week. There was a Bernie tweeted and there was a and he said he was tweeting in response to something that happened in on a media show where yeah. somebody said, like, I want Bernie not to give the same speech anymore. And Bernie, tw- I'm paraphrasing your Bernie tweeted out. Well, I'll stop giving the same speech when we've reached full justice. Right. Then I'll write then I'll write some new speeches. During that recent episode of the 99, Ari went on to argue that even well-meaning reporters have a tendency to cast electoral contests as sports games with the lack of nuance and specificity that that entails. Have you ever read an AP sports report? It's like really simple. An AP sports report is the Knicks played the Nets. The Knicks scored 90 (sighs) points. The Nets scored 80 points. Quote from Knicks player, quotes from Nets player, quote from something else. Yeah. Interesting color that happened in the game, concluding paragraph. That's an AP sports report. That's how they want to cover politics. Oh, I, I, I was with some reporters as we were traveling. You know, we did this trip in Iowa and Texas and Nevada over the weekend. Mm-hmm. And the reporters, a reporter I was with, who was, it was a good reporter, by the way, was talking about the NEA forum. They're like, who do you think put points on the board? That was the question <laughs> right. the reporter asked It's NEA, not NBA. Yeah, NEA. <laughs> but that's not how politics works. It's not about picking a team and playing a position. It's about, or at least it should be about, assessing the needs of constituents and advancing policies that best meet those needs. And the job of pundits should be to help us make accurate assessments about what candidates are offering and how able they are to follow through on their promises. But unfortunately, that's often not what we get. Sam, what's going on? What's your read on this? What's going on when I go on Steve Kornacki and it's me and I consider myself to be a leftist a, you know, center-left representative and a Republican. And Kornacki asks me, don't you think it's risky for can- in, the, in the midst of last fall's midterms, don't you think it's risky for candidates to run on Medicare for all? To which I reply, given recent polls that show a majority of Americans, an overwhelming majority of Americans and a majority, a slim majority of Republicans actually support Medicare for all, I think it's risky not to run on Medicare for all. And then the conversation between the ostensible liberal and the right-wing person is all about how they are in complete agreement about how those polls aren't tested, they don't show anything, that they don't really know what they what Medicare for All means, and so we can't believe that. And then the studio throws up an outdated poll on the screen, which shows that only 52% of Americans support Medicare for All, when the reality was 72% at the time. You know, what's, what is going on there? Is it because that's not something is that something that's coming from the top? Is that people's unassessed personal bias? Is it structural and the fact of just having chosen who appears on these kinds of shows? I mean, because that's the kind of bias I think that that bothers me the most because it goes largely unseen. You know, I didn't notice the graphic was out of date until after I, I watched the show back later. But that that kind of framing even, and you say this at the debates, the questions are framed as though they were written by a right uh, a conservative viewer. You know, why why is it that a, an outlet like MSNBC which has the reputation at least of being so progressive continually frames things in a way that seems most advantageous to a conservative worldview? I think it may have been a, a different situation 
seven years ago, five years ago, mm-hmm. you know, eight years ago. I think, and, and it, I think it's a function sometimes of the hosts because uh, I think that some hosts are more allergic to the left than others there. Again, incompetence plays a big role in it. Back almost 10 years ago now, I filled in for Olbermann for a couple of weeks. I remember being sort of shocked at the, you know, that I knew a little bit more about what was going on with Social Security than the producer who was writing the piece about Social Security. That's because I was, you know, I feel very strongly about Social Security. If you don't feel, if you're not engaged in, you know, politics, I think sometimes your ideology and where you sit on the ideological spectrum dictates how deeply you look into uh, these issues. I am a producer. I, you know, don't feel terribly strongly about Medicare for all. Maybe I'm for it. Maybe I'm against. Maybe I have no opinion. I come across an old poll. All right. There's the poll. I don't, you know, like it's, it's conceivable to me that they said, oh, we've got these two polls. One is this recent one. One's the not. Let's go with the one that, that says that they're lowest. I mean, that's not, that doesn't seem impossible for me to imagine that would happen, but it's far more likely that what happened was like, I don't know much about this. I don't really care that, you know, deeply about it. I'm going to go with that poll. It's not, I don't even see the two polls. I'm just going to go with the most recent one that I found because I'm not really up on this topic. So it doesn't even occur to me that it's wrong. I think there's some bias too. I mean, look, at one point there were people who on the outside of Air America who would look at what was going on because we were having problems there and say like, I, I mean, there were listeners who were like, who would write in going, you must have some type of secret mole in, uh, and, and it was a perfectly rea- uh, you know, rational response to some of the things that were happening there. But it really largely was a function of incompetence and mm. people who were just sort of like, this is a business. And so I'm not yeah. paying too much attention to the politics. And that disposition almost is definitional about having center-right politics. That's a really good argument for having not just hosts, but you know, staff whose class interests are more aligned with those of the average American. Because you know, it takes a certain kind of person to maintain an indifference to something like Medicare for all. And then you think about the system of how people get to be, you know, there's certainly, uh, there are exceptions to this rule, but the way that people get that job is uh, more often than not, like I was able to do a summer internship from my Ivy League school and I built this relationship and there's so much, there's so much that's structural that leads, it's like one of those like pinchinko things where you drop the marble down and it lands in a certain area. Well, it's all those different nails, you know, on the trip down that lead to a certain uh, place. And so it's not any given specific nail. It's just sort of a, a, a systemic issue. Now, sometimes that bias might be systemic, but at other times it definitely seems conscious. This gets at a point that I think many Americans have also picked up on. There really is no such thing as a nonpartisan news source. Even choosing what counts as a story or what goes on the front page is an inescapably political process. If you call yourself a centrist or attempt to split representation between establishment right and establishment left voices, then you are simply biased in favor of the status quo. And if you work for a major cable network, chances are the status quo works in your favor. I asked Sam whether there were any specific narratives to look out for. 
It's a flag for folks who might not have an intuitive sense of the type of subtle but meaningful bias we're pointing out here. The narratives are, are sort of a little bit more fractured than they used to be. But, you know, you'd hear things like Social Security is going bankrupt. Now, we never hear that anymore. Paul Ryan's not in the, in, in the, in the House and the uh, Republicans are just playing a, a different game. But, um, you know, things like back in the day, like the, the uh, a certain size of the deficit is problematic and uh, right. Social Security is going bankrupt. Things like well, how are you going to displace, um, uh, you know, a million workers in healthcare if you have Medicare for all? You know, the reality is, is like you're talking about 500,000 uh, people who work in this industry, many of whom will find a similar job just with a different paymaster. In fact, maybe the same paymaster, but just getting that funding not from people's premiums, but from uh, the gov- from a government contract. I mean, you know, I would just encourage people to read multiple sources about any given story. You cannot discount the laziness of the media and their willingness to just accept things that are conventional wisdom because they are dispositionally and ideologically ready to accept those things, right? So they're not looking at certain things critically. And they do that for the right to a certain extent because these are, I think, largely center-left people, uh, maybe center-right people. They accept what the far right says because they feel like I'm not in a position to judge. They perceive themselves as being you know, liberal. And so they're in a position to, to just make a broad blanket assessment of some assertions about the left that are not true. So, you know, I think, you know, if you're someone who is looking for a, you know, more justice in society, economic justice, and in, 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 in particular, you got to be very critical about what premises you're accepting from the mainstream press. You know, we we were on MSNBC together on Chris Hayes' show last year, and Chris Hayes is, is, I would say, probably the most progressive mainstream news host. People commented to me after that panel, and I think there was even like a Splinter story written up that was like, this is the most progressive panel I've ever seen on the mainstream news. And it was you, me, Michelle Goldberg, and obviously Chris Hayes. And it strikes me as, kind of wild <laughs> that that is that 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 moment was remarkable enough to merit any notice because the overwhelming pattern of hosts and the composition of these panels is usually so much farther to the center or center right th- th- than that one was i mean what did you, what did you make of that panel it, it was my sense that like that should be the panel 90 percent of the time Right. Like, yeah. like, like, I mean, theoretically, if the, if MSNBC is is this outlet, that should be the panel 90 percent of the time. I mean, my expectations of, of MSNBC are, you know, have been attenuated to to, you know, what I uh, know from from just basically reading about it. The agenda has been there since uh, basically, like I say, 2015, 2016. I, I think it's possible that I am the furthest left person who gets paid to go on that network. I don't follow it that much, but uh, as far as I can tell, that's probably the case. I can also tell you I had an experience where uh, on the night that we bombed Syria, I was in to talk about something I can't remember, something probably incredibly inconsequential. And I ended up sitting on the panel for about 45 minutes because they had gotten word almost as I arrived that an attack was imminent. 
I believe that I was the only person within the prime time, the entire prime time from eight to midnight, who was unequivocal saying that we should not bomb Syria. (laughs) That's nuts. I think I was left on that panel for 45 minutes. They flipped in other people, but I think I was left on that panel for 45 minutes because I was the only person who was saying that. And my understanding is that the nine o'clock show and the 10 o'clock show and the 11 o'clock show, there was no one who was saying that. That's a function of just like who they've hired as contributors, who they have on their Rolodex, who's available last minute. But it's also ridiculous that I was the only person making that argument. I mean, just even from, a, from a, you know, from an analysis perspective, right? Like, how can you really analyze the value of doing this if everyone has the exact same opinion, which varies between like, we should definitely do this and we should do it again, or we should do this yeah. and then we need to come up with a plan or uh, we can do this and uh, the generals will really take care of it. I mean, this is, this is Donald Trump and this is a network and everybody on that network the day before, or maybe hours before, was saying that Donald Trump is completely, you know, you can't trust him to do anything. You know, when it comes to bombing something, you could trust him. We're not getting, uh, you know, the range of perspective. And yeah, it was weird. It, it shouldn't have been a cause for sort of like exclamation points that there were, you know, a range of people on the left on a panel. That should not be, a, you know, a, a freakish event. So what should we be looking out for when we watch the news? What are the signposts that might indicate that we can't take a point of view at face value? So there are a couple of things in general that you should look out for that'll tip you off as to whether or not the, the source you're reading or watching on TV is reliable. And I should make it clear, it's not like these people are terrible people. They're just institutionalized biases or implicit biases that you'll have you will have because some people if they come from a different ideology some of them are bad people i'm going to be real <laughs> Jennifer Rubin, david from not great people but um some of them are conservative and they're neocons which means that they basically believe in bush's programs they believe in tax cuts for the wealthy they don't believe in the uh safety net they don't believe in things like social security um medicare Some of them worked on campaigns, right? And that should be revealed at the very least. Ari actually had a really good measured example of this. I remember once when I was at Media Matters, one of the angriest phone calls I ever got was there was a Democratic strategist on a panel. And the Democratic strategist was touting drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. We pointed out just there was an innocuous Media Matters post that said X network had X person on, yeah. and they did not disclose that they received money from. How dare you suggest that I take this position because yeah. I receive mm-hmm. money? And it's like, I'm actually not suggesting that. What I'm suggesting is it just should be disclosed. So if they work for George Bush, if they worked for Hillary Clinton, um, they're going to have biases. If they uh, represent a think tank like Third Way, which is committed to cutting Social Security and which won't reveal how much of their money comes from Wall Street. But we do know that in 2013, uh, I believe of their 29 trustees, uh, I think 20 or 21 of them were investment bankers. So you want to look at who they're associated with, what they say. If they say things like we have to move more to the center or be more moderate, that means they have a certain ideology that they'll, they'll often present that ideology as the pragmatic, non-ideological position. And that's very important to be aware of because that's in itself an ideology, right? It's not true that the polls bear out the fact that we will be more effective against Trump if we move towards the center. 
But when people say that and they present that as if it's just reality and not its own ideological slant, that's something else you want to look out for and be careful of. Another one of the examples that I saw recently is the new how you how are you going to pay for that that liberals like to use since there is the kind of awareness that how you like to pay, how will you pay for that is kind of a conservative line is how are you going to get that passed with a conservative Senate? And it's not that that's not like a political question that's, you know, arguably worth asking, but it's selectively asked with respect to some of Bernie Sanders policies as opposed to every other person's policies in a way that suggests, you know, every progressive, every left leaning policy point on any candidate's agenda is going to face the obstacle of getting through Congress. Is there a point then that no 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 Democrat should run on anything other than what is a Republican agenda? Should Jeb Bush run again? Should Mitt Romney throw his hat in the ring? Like, no, we should be running on their positions. I guess we should be running on Jeb Bush and Mitt Romney's positions. No, that's a really important point. So, right, I mean, one thing is that you have to demand more than you're going to get. First of all, that's just history. You go in there demanding the most, and sometimes you won't get it. But the idea that you won't make the moral case for something until it's viable is a self-fulfilling prophecy, first of all, because what you need to make it viable is you need to make the moral case. And even if it doesn't make it succeed legislative, le- legislatively the first time, you're laying the groundwork. I mean, you can't get the other thing without doing that ahead of time. You just can't. And so it's either an ill-informed or disingenuous argument. And again, you need to be make- pushing and you need to be making demands. And how do you think, you know, at first, there are lots of things that people didn't think would pass. And they either didn't pass, they surprised people and did pass, or if they didn't, again, it made it that much easier for when there was a, a Democratic Congress or when there was a Democratic president. And of course, there's that famous FDR story, apocryphal or not, where he goes, okay, now go ahead, he says to A. Philip Randolph, who's asking for trying to push the president to do, do things for civil rights. And he goes, okay, sounds great, now go out and make me do it. You know. Presidents, politicians, they need to be pushed. They need to feel a political pressure to do something. They need to feel like it's politically toxic not to do something. And we've seen this with Medicare for All. I mean, we have to be careful and make sure that people are actually following through and not just saying it as a slogan. But yeah, it's a very dangerous argument. And I think usually people who are making it don't, again, there's a very disingenuous conflation of ideology and pragmatism. And often people just don't want the more progressive thing, the more, I don't want to say radical because that suggests it doesn't have mass support. And as Sanders points out and his supporters will point out, his programs all have mass support and are popular. They're portrayed as radical and they are radical among the media and political elites for obvious reasons. Yeah, that's a very, that's a disingenuous argument that it'll scare people away. That's another one that, you know, you have to track center. You don't defeat right-wing populism with moderate uh, middle-of-the-road policies. They don't excite people. They don't speak to the same things that the right-wing populism speaks to. Oh, and then another thing you have to look out for, another argument, my gosh. Universal programs aren't fair because they disproportionately are paid for by the poor and the rich benefit from them. That is probably one of the most dangerous arguments out there for a couple reasons. There, there's a reason that Newt Gingrich talked about welfare queens and not social security queens, right? Which is a very dog whistly, racially coded thing to say. And he did that because it's easy to portray people, uh, even though we know that more white people are on welfare, 
But it's easy when you have programs that are means tested and that aren't universal, it's much easier to stigmatize them because literally not everyone is on them, right? It's easier to stigmatize them. It's easier to cut them because you don't have the wealthy invested in them, the powerful invested in them. You don't see them as a right. You see them as charity because if it's a right, it's something that everyone should have. And the narrative, you know, you hear Klobuchar saying this and you hear tons of people in the media saying this, but if you think that that's okay, kind of, not really, but let's say for argument's sake it's okay, then you should also say the same thing about Social Security. You should oppose Social Security because that's a universal program too. Do you feel like the poor are unfairly paying into that? Yeah, or, or the police department or the fire departments or roads or power plants. <laughs> but yeah, that's a very dangerous argument. And it's so dangerous because it's like, it's almost refreshing when someone's just like, I don't believe in a welfare state. I don't really believe in anything but the meritocracy or bootstrapping. But it's it's scarier when people claim to be coming from a progressive economic social justice kumbaya perspective and are just making a right wing argument that's disguised as being progressive. As you might be able to tell, Katie and I could go on for hours about media bias. And we had no problem filling an hour on the 99 talking about the same subject with relatively little overlap to this podcast. But the bottom line is this. It's important to consider the interests of the people advancing a narrative and to assess that information with the context in mind. This, for example, is a podcast from the Bernie Sanders campaign. Obviously, we're all big fans of Bernie here, but we don't hide that fact. And you can and should make an independent assessment about what we talk about on this podcast. What's less obvious is the extent to which the corporate media is, well, run by corporations. This doesn't mean that individual journalists or editors have bad intentions, or that they're even aware of what they're doing. It's fully possible that the New York Times' coverage of the NAACP presidential forum last week, which literally didn't mention Bernie Sanders' name once, despite him being the number two candidate in this race and one of the only candidates there to receive a standing ovation, omitted him completely by accident. But it's also fair to note that it's an accident that would not likely have happened with more ideological diversity among writers and staff members. And by that, I don't mean adding more Republicans. If there's any takeaway here, it isn't to hate the media or to judge the media unfairly. It's simply to bring your own judgment to bear because you are the best positioned to assess your own interests. And you'll certainly do a better job of it than Jeff Bezos. That's it for this week. Let us know what you think at heartheburn at berniesanders.com or send us a tweet with the hashtag heartheburn. If you haven't already, please take a moment to rate, review, or like us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you're listening. Transcripts will be up soon. Till next time.